you're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Wendy H. Wong, author of We the Data, Human Rights in the Digital Age. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. One of the things that we need to remember is that we are data stakeholders and we are not data subjects. We're often called data subjects. If you look at the way legislation's written, if you look at the way tech companies talk about the users of their technology, we're data subjects. Being a subject means that you're being acted upon. And I think that it's true, but it also casts this sort of you can't help but have this happen to you effect. And I, I want to point out, and I do point out in the book, we're actually data stakeholders for the reason that data cannot be created without us. We're half the equation. This is what I call co-creation in the book. You need a data collector who's interested in data, but you need a data source that actually provides the basis for which the data are collected. Without either a source or a collector, there's no data about people. I think we need to remember that we are at least half the equation there. That we are actually really important. We have a stake in the datafication process. We have a stake in the AI creation and deployment process. Now, on the one hand, it seems like a very small shift. On the other hand, language matters and mindset matters. And so if you're a data stakeholder, that means that you should be more involved. This doesn't have to happen, right? Yes, the terms and conditions right now exist in a way that disempower us as data sources, but that's not inevitable. That's also regulable. I think that's one way to start. And the other way that I think policymakers really need to turn is to facilitate data literacy. Data literacy fits into the broader idea of digital literacy, which is just figuring out what the heck is going on in our digital world. Data literacy is really important because being literate is about being competent, being able to function in society, to get what you want and not to be fooled. That's why we read and we write, because we can communicate with others clearly and we know what to expect. If we have a contract, for example, same thing with math. You do math because when you have a transaction in the market, you want to make sure that the numbers add up. We need data literacy because it's becoming very clear that data intensive technology is not going anywhere. And many of us actually lack the understanding of what it means to datafy, not just creating digital data, but creating data in general, learning more about what data are for, what kinds of decisions go into making any data set and why the biases of various data collectors is going to affect the output you get from data. What you ask of the data is really important. And also the quality of the data are really important for generating useful outcomes. I think those that's a mindset, that's a skill set. We don't get taught very often in school explicitly. I think that has to happen globally. So every country has to figure out how they're going to do that. But especially for democracy, if you don't teach people about the importance of data and why the algorithm is just spitting out statistical inferences, then it seems way more mysterious than it should be. And I think that's really important for facilitating stakeholdership, but also for people to get a, a grasp throughout AI is not magic. AI is a human created artifact or set of artifacts. And in order to live to our full human potential, in order to exercise human rights, we're going to have data literacy. So in the book, I do argue that Data literacy should be a part of the right to education, which already exists across a wide variety of documents and institutions. I do think that the environment is a place where having more data will help us create better models for thinking about how climate change is going to affect life on Earth. And I, and I agree with you. I think that we should be thinking about the now and life on Earth today and, and not doing harm going forward, because I think it's important to live now and not in this projected future. With, with regard to AI, with the killer robots, but also with climate change, with some of the horrible projections that people have put out there. So we know that might happen if we don't 
mitigate carbon production. So let's focus on creating solutions for today. Like how are we going to get to net zero by 2050, for example? So in some ways, data minimization as a standard is really, in my mind, about data. And when we think about other fields, if we think about climate science, for example, I don't know if I'd follow a data minimization model because I think we have a lot of data. So earlier this year, there was a lake in Ontario where they were able to pull some really important soil samples out of to to think about the dawn of the Anthropocene. And I think that's really important. That's a great discovery for thinking about the effects of human-driven climate change, but also it creates more data for us to understand the process. And so in that case, data minimization isn't a sensical recommendation. But I think with regard to AI, because we think about artificial intelligence as somehow matching up or approximating human intelligence and therefore requiring data about humans to approximate that intelligence, we need to really think about how data can have adverse effects on living human beings because that's where the data are coming from. So I think in terms of thinking about data, the human rights lens really is focused on data from humans and not other types of data. So that's kind of where I think others can speak to the benefits of data collection in uh, climate, but also in the medical sciences. In that situation, there really is a lot of discretion with regard to thinking about how to protect patients while also trying to collect data, especially when you think about something like the COVID-19 pandemic, it was really important to collect data around the world on how the disease was affecting all of us as a species. But unfortunately, in that situation, AI wasn't as helpful because the data were not standardized. You got all sorts of different types of data, and so there wasn't enough data for the algorithms to make any meaningful prediction. As you point out, they're reaching far more people than any government does. I, I like to say, you know, the numbers for Meta vary between three and four billion people that they reach through their platforms, right? No matter which number you pick, that's way more people than any government legitimately could claim govern. And yet this one company with four major platforms that many of us use is able to reach so many people and make decisions about content and access that have real consequences. It's been shown they fuel genocide in, in multiple places now in Ethiopia and in Myanmar. I think this is really important to recognize that big tech is out there doing things that we probably associate most with government, but we're not giving them the same responsibility. And I think that's exactly why human rights matter, because human rights are obligations that states have signed on for. And they're supposed to protect. There are dozens and dozens of human rights out there at the international level through the United Nations system. But in the book, I really talk about four human rights values. So I'm not talking about specific rights like freedom of expression or privacy per se. I think there's a lot of work out there that is discussing that. What I want to foreground for people is we should be thinking about how data about our most mundane activities is changing how we think about human rights values like dignity. So we started talking about data and death. That was not a question people had 20 years ago. How does that affect dignity? How does that affect autonomy? How does that affect how we think about who belongs in the human community? Another human rights value, you know, to think about us as individuals within a greater collective. And the last human rights value that's really important is this idea of equality, that we have to be treated according to the same standards. These are four values that underpin the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. That is the major statement of human rights after World War II. And it is the document that really made human rights universal. 
so everyone can claim them, and that they're interdependent, and it created entitlements for people, right? This is not just, it's nice to have these rights. You actually are entitled to them because they protect something about human potential. It's important to point that all out. You brought up this idea of privacy. I think a lot of people talk about privacy in the context of AI data and of data in particular. My worry about that concept and how it's become so predominant in the way that we talk about AI data, including in the White House executive order, is that it really assumes that the data collection about all of our most mundane everyday activities is okay if we can protect the privacy of the individuals from which they came. And I think actually from a human rights perspective, it's important to argue that we shouldn't be collecting certain types of data because it's excessive. It starts violating autonomy. It starts violating dignity. And when you start violating autonomy and dignity through the collection of data, you can't just go back and fix that by making it private. There are also other technologies out there that actually don't really require that there's any sort of personal connection in life for this to happen. So there are ways to resurrect someone, so to speak, using data they generated throughout their life. And you know you can bring them back in ways that they may not have agreed with. And so one of the things I think is problematic in this whole situation is not just the autonomy that I talked about in that passage, but also how we treat human beings with dignity as though we're beings with worth. And so if we can take the data that describe our activities in life and use them to create digital alternatives or digital resurrections, what does that really mean about how we think about what that person did in life and how we can treat that person once they're gone? So there's a lot of different questions here. One of the other themes of this particular chapter is this idea of discretion and choice, which goes back to autonomy. So as human beings, we have discretion over how we interact with people. I mean, think about this in, in real life, right, Mia? Like we don't talk to police the same way we would talk to our friends. And that's because we're exercising discretion, even though we're the same person. What all these data out there about us do is it effectively eliminates our ability to exercise discretion if someone did choose to bring us back, so to speak, using data that really describe a lot of what we did when we were living. It's a humanistic project, right? It's about what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to live a human life? Is there a fundamental human experience we can all draw on with or without these technologies? I think human beings are fascinated with and terrified by the idea of death. I mean, all these people trying to live till they're 150 or even upload their brain, are they the same? I, I don't know. It depends on how you assume human life to be. Is it that we can add up all the data collected about what you've ever done or thought, and that would be you, that would be Mia, or that'd be Wendy? Or is it there's something else that makes us Mia and Wendy? And I don't think we'll ever come to an answer. I think that's the great mystery of life. That's the great turmoil that we all go through as we think about mortality, because I think we'd all like to live on. No one wants to be forgotten. No one wants to live a life of obscurity. Maybe some people do, but many of us don't. We want to be remembered and usually in a good way. So I do think where we started this conversation is important to the book because how we live our lives on a very moment by moment basis right now is going to be reflected when we're gone if things go the way they've been going. And I think that's something for everyone to think about. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.